So the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be doing this for a while, but I think it's good. Every one of these stands on its own, but they do build on each other. So if you missed a few of the, of the past ones, you can go back and grab them on YouTube or if you just want audio on the website or SoundCloud. So they're all there. This morning, we're going to break new ground in chapter 6. So we finished chapter 5 after, I think it took us 11 weeks (laughs) to finish chapter 5. But we're going deep, and we're just taking little bites at a time. Here we break down our break ground with chapter 6. And the Sermon on the Mount as a whole was probably an early catechism for the church. It was a collection of Jesus' sayings that were put in a very specific order with a very specific framework and structure that really brings you through. And I have been pointing that out. I'll continue to point that out, um, the structure that is behind Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And then Matthew took it and incorporated into his gospel in the later part of the first century is the way most scholars see this actually working and happening. The Sermon on the Mount, taken as a whole, is an intense and concentrated look at a radically different view of life. And this is what we need to understand. The sermon is doing us no good if it isn't tweaking us. It's doing no good if it isn't disturbing us. It's a radically different view of life. To look at life from a kingdom perspective changes everything about the way we experience our moments, the way we choose within them, the type of relationships that we have. If we can actually come around to Jesus' point of view, that small speck of reality that we've been talking about is going to be very apparent in all of our moments. Now, we've been talking about this in terms of this shift that Jesus is trying to make with, for all of us between from legal to relational trying to get rid of this legal look at life, this quid pro quo, this zero-sum game, this acceptance for performance. All that has to go out the window in favor of a relational view of our connection with God. If we don't get that basic shift taken, then we're also never going to be able to move from fear to love. Because law is all about fear of punishment. The teeth and traction of the law is fear of punishment. As long as we're living in fear, we're not perfected in love. 1 John 4 tells us that. So the move and the shift from legal to relational at the same time is going to be the move and the shift from fear to love. But there's even a deeper connection here. It's a shift from the sense of need, lack, and want as the basic paradigm for our lives here to abundance. Living life from a viewpoint of need, of lack, of want, is a life lived in fear. Fear of not getting the things that we need, the things that we want of life. And if you think about it, all dysfunctional behavior, all sinful behavior, if you want to put it that way, comes from a sense of lack, comes from a sense of need. If we can change that basic viewpoint around, as Jesus is trying to do for us, a lot of the fear starts to seep out of the system, and a lot of the behavior is able to go with it. Jesus is trying to get us to see a way to live life from a viewpoint of abundance and fulfillment, where gratitude becomes the basic mode of operation. Gratitude because we know the source of everything, where it comes from. 
And we know the source in the Hebrew sense of the word, intimate familiarity, not just knowing intellectually, but have experienced this source. So this legal worldview that we're talking about is the fear equals a fear of punishment, but it also is a fear of finite resources, that there's just not going to be enough for us. Jesus is constantly, if you think about all of his sayings, look at the birds, look at the lilies of the field. He's trying to show us that there is another source that is inexhaustible, that is always showering, always showering on us, that we're immersed in, even though it's unseen, that changes the way that we deal with material resources, which can at times be finite, but it makes all the difference, all the difference. This is why Jesus' message is always geared toward the Father's unconditional and inexhaustible love, because this is where it all comes from. And until we can see that there is no need that we really have, ultimately, then we're always going to be living in fear. So in Matthew 5, what Jesus was doing was redefining the law trying to get the law to change it from just a legal apparatus to actually seeing the intent of the law, moving it that way, from legal to intentional. See the intention of the law, not just the rules, because that allows us to become aware of abundance. If we see what the law is intending to do, and we talked about this, what is the law really all about? Well, it's about preserving life, first of all. And secondly, it's about infusing a sense of God's presence, the awareness of God's presence in every moment. Those are the two intentions of the law. The rules are just keeping us in the sandbox long enough until that really takes hold, that gets imprinted on our hearts, so that then we're not following rules at all anymore. Heaven and earth have passed away. They've merged into oneness, and now we don't need rules anymore. This is what Jesus is doing in chapter 5, trying to get us to understand this. Now, in chapter 6, he's going to move to righteousness, and he's going to redefine righteousness in pretty much the same way. Now, the law had its 613 written rules and laws and commands that the Pharisees and the scribes had extracted from the Torah. They had three ways of kind of a test, a litmus test, if you will, or a demonstration of righteousness that they abided by. And the first one was almsgiving, charitable giving. The second was prayer, and the third was fasting. So these three activities in a person's life was the measuring rod of their righteousness. But what the Pharisees had done, of course, is they had reduced these to obligations now. They would reduced these to more rules, more law. In terms of giving, they had all these rules set up. Now, the Old Testament had the concept of the tithe, a tenth of all your increase, but that was actually a tax because the religious code and the civil code for the Israelites were the same. There was only one code, and they had to support the infrastructure of the Levites, the ones that took care of the temple and took care of all of the things because they didn't have a portion of the land. The tithe was a tax. It was a civil tax. But what the Pharisees had done with this idea of charitable giving is they had applied all these different rules to it, you know? They had the good eye, and they had the bad eye, and they had the middling eye, you know? The good eye was if you were very generous. The bad eye was if you were only giving a small amount, and the middling eye was somewhere in the middle. But they had codified everything. And as soon as you do that, it changes the nature of what is going on. And not only that, then they started using these three ways of proving their righteousness to self-aggrandize themselves. 
to show themselves as higher among the people and in their their, uh, communities as being so much more righteous. And so what Jesus is going to do, he's going to take these three in sequence, and he's going to redefine them all. He's going to turn them on on their heads, same way he did with the law. And today, what the first one we're going to look at is charitable giving. So let's read Matthew 6, starting right at verse 1. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. Okay, so with the Pharisees, what you have to understand in their concept, in, in, their, in their time, was that everything was kind of a show. They did everything to be noticed by men. So they're, they're, Jesus is he's, he's right on point here. I don't know if you're familiar with the phylacteries, what the phylacteries were in, uh, in Deuteronomy 6. They talk about you know, keeping the, the scripture at the forefront of your mind and on your right arm. The arm was the, the seat of action and the mind was the seat of your thoughts. So keep the scriptures on your mind and on your, on your actions. And they took that literally so that they actually created leather boxes that they would strap to their heads with scriptures inside the boxes, and they wore them on their foreheads. Not all the time, but but at ritual times. And they had another one that, that strapped onto the forearm, and the strap went across your heart. It was all very symbolic, right? Well, what the Pharisees did was take these phylacteries <laughs> and broaden them. And at one point, Jesus says, yeah, you broaden your phylacteries and you lengthen the tassels on your talit, your, your prayer shawl. So they had these huge boxes on their heads so they could show everybody how really righteous they were. And then on the prayer shawl, there were fringes on them, the, the seats they were called, and they were knotted in a specific way. Well, they would lengthen these until they were dragging on the ground, again, to show how righteous they were. So everything about the Pharisees was about showing their righteousness because this was a seat of their power. If the people didn't respect their righteousness, then they lost their hold over the people as doctors or lawyers of the law. And so they played this game. And it's not only with giving, as we're talking about today, but when Jesus hits with prayer and fasting, you're going to see the same formula here. Do not do this to be noticed by men. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. Now, this idea of reward is something we're going to come back to later. But in terms of reward, we need to really think about spiritual insight, spiritual awareness, rather than the kind of rewards that we normally think about. So when you read this, it sounds pretty straightforward. I mean, in English, we can read this, and we can get a sense of what Jesus is talking about. But what we do miss here is a slap in the face that this would have been to the people that Jesus was talking to. Now, especially the Pharisees, right? You can imagine that they were just turning purple and all the veins were standing out in their neck as he's saying these things to the people. But the people themselves, they had been so indoctrinated. Remember, the Pharisees had been in power for some two to three hundred years before Jesus comes on the scene. It was a sect that had been growing ever since they came back out of exile in Babylon. And so the people had been indoctrinated in any kind of memory generationally that this was the way it is. This is how righteousness was measured. This is how the law worked. And what Jesus is trying to do is to deconstruct that worldview, deconstruct that hard-packed understanding of the people. So it was mind-blowing, just about as mind-blowing to them as it was to the Pharisees. Now, they didn't have any power, so they didn't have that dog in the race. But imagine what it was like. They were awed by the Pharisees. They saw them as the model of righteousness. And Jesus is bringing them down to their own level. 
This is really radical stuff. So if we step back into the context a little bit of these sayings, I think it can help us to maybe connect the dots a little better. So let's take a look at a couple of the phrases here. The first one is doing righteousness. Now, doing righteousness is another Hebrew idiom. And these idiom and idiomatic expressions are so important for us to understand because you can't understand an idiom by understanding the definitions of the words in the phrase, right? It's an agreed-upon meaning, like it's raining cats and dogs. We, we know the meaning. We don't know where it comes from, but we know the meaning. We mean it, it's raining very hard, okay? Quadrupeds are not really falling from the sky. So there's lots of idiomatic expressions here. Doing righteousness is doing sedaka. Sedaka is the word that means righteousness, but it can also mean just charitable giving. It literally means that you are performing or you're doing acts of mercy. It's who you come upon and do, what do they need. So the good Samaritan who comes upon the, the Jew who is in the gutter here having been beaten and robbed, what he does for him is sedaka. It's an act of mercy. It's a gift. It's righteous. And he's a Samaritan. So another point that Jesus is making, right? Who is my neighbor? Everyone is your neighbor if they're in front of you at the moment. So doing righteousness is a way of saying to give or to perform an act of mercy. Sounding the trumpet. When you give, he says, don't sound the trumpet as the hypocrites do. So sounding the trumpet, we can imagine what that means. It means just making a big show and blowing your own horn. In fact, where does blowing your horn come from? You know, it comes from this as a, as a saying of ours, another idiomatic expression, right? But sounding the trumpet has a, another deeper meaning. The temple was constructed, if you've ever seen a, a floor plan of the temple, as much as they can reconstruct it anyway, this is uh, the second temple, Herod's temple. It was just a big rectangle sitting on a flat and they, they took the Temple Mount and just created a, a huge flat stone courtyard. And then right in the middle of it, walled in, is this huge rectangle shape. And the front gate was called the Beautiful Gate, and there were gates on both sides and the front. And when you went into the next courtyard, that was called the Court of the Women. The outside court was called the Court of the Gentiles. And so anybody could be on the outer court. The Gentiles, whether they're Jews or not, men, women, everyone can be in the courtyard outside the main walls of the temple itself. But as soon as you entered one of those three gates, you are now in the Court of the Women. This is the outermost court. This doesn't mean that only women were there, but it was as far as women could go in that culture. The women could go into the outer court, but they couldn't go into the next court, what was the court of the Israelites or the court of the men. That was the area where all the sacrifices were done. And then there was another gate that went into the holies and then the holy of holies. And so there was this, you know, getting deeper and deeper into the temple. But the court of the women was the outermost court. And they had 13 collection boxes around the perimeter of this court in different places. Actually, 11 in the court and two on either side of the gate. And these were collection boxes for people to give gifts. And each one was specific about the type of gifts that you could give in that particular collection box. And then at intervals, it was all collected and taken to the inner chamber inside the sanctuary. Well, these were called the trumpets. Why? Because they had a narrow throat at the top, and then they expanded down like the bell of a horn at the bottom. And so if someone came in and threw in a whole big handful of money and made a big scene and a big noise, and everybody turned and went, wow, that was called sounding the trumpet. 
So it's interesting how Jesus is saying something that had a lot more significance to them. We can kind of glean the meaning, but there's a lot more there. And of course, immediately they understood what was going on, both the Pharisees and the people. This is why it was so important when Jesus just hanging out. I don't know if you remember the story. Jesus is just hanging out in the temple, just sitting in front of one of these treasury boxes, one of the trumpets. And this old widow comes and puts in what would be probably a tenth of a cent, a mite is what they called it. You know, this is the famous widow's mite. And she does that. She drops it in. Nobody notices. Nobody cares. I mean, it's such an insignificant amount of money. But he turns to his father and says, see what she just did? Did you get that? You know, he's probably all excited. Could you imagine just, Jesus just hanging out, just sitting by the treasury box, just enjoying people watching? <sighs> to have been there, to be able to hang out with him sometimes, you know? But he's just hanging out. Did you see what she did? You know? These people who are sounding the trumpet here are giving out of their surplus. Huh? She gave out of everything that she has. Over and over and over again, Jesus is trying to redefine the ideas of righteousness, but he's doing it very specifically here, sounding the trumpet. Don't do it. Then he calls them hypocrites. The hypocrites do this. And the Aramaic phrase for hypocrites is another idiomatic expression. I just love it. It's the receiver of faces. Two words, receiver of faces, that we translate as hypocrites. Think of that. It's someone who assumes a role, right? An actor who puts on a mask for their own personal gain. That's a hypocrite, a receiver of faces. So interesting. And it's important for us to realize that there really aren't that many hypocrites around. We throw that word around a lot. We start to throw it around because it's just someone we don't like doing something we don't like, we're a hypocrite, you know. But really there aren't too many hypocrites who are consciously and intentionally putting on a face assuming a role for their own personal gain. Most of us are just sort of garden variety sinners. <laughs> we just don't measure up to the things that we believe, but we do believe them. Hypocrites don't even believe what it is they're saying or doing. They're doing it for a specific reason, for their own gain. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, he says, which is another idiomatic expression, which just means as secretly as possible. And we can sort of glean that one, right? But here's the thing. Hebrews often, idiomatically, attribute actions to body parts as if they had a mind of their own, all right? If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, right? Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So they're taking body parts, extremities, and then attributing them as having volition, having action of their own, as if it was referring to the whole person. So it becomes a metaphor for the actions of the person and the seat of their choices, right? Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing means don't even let your nearest and dearest friend who is sitting right next to you know what you're doing. Do it in secret. And what does secret mean? <clears throat> well, we have an idea of that, right? Secret. But there's more. <laughs> But wait, there's more. It's a possible allusion to the chamber of secrets in the temple. Now, I know you're all thinking Harry Potter right now, but this is not that. See? Yeah, I told you. It's a chamber of secrets. There was a chamber of secrets. Actually, there were two chambers in the sanctuary. One was a chamber of secrets, and the other was a chamber of vessels. And it was a room. It was a place 
And the vessels, there were about 93 vessels, and these would be what? They'd be cups and candlesticks and candelabra and whatever the, the actual machinery was that ran all the temple uh, events and the temple performances. About 93 of them, they were all stored in the chamber of vessels in one section. But there was another section where people could come and they could donate vessels to this, the, the temple if they wanted to. And then periodically the, 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 the temple folks would come and they'd evaluate which ones they were going to keep and use and which ones they were going to sell off and, and take the proceeds. So that was the temple of vessels. The other was a tem- um, the temple, the chamber of, of vessels. The other was the chamber of secrets. And the chamber of secrets was where people could go and deposit money anonymously without anybody knowing who they were. And then those who needed money, those who were down on their luck and and needed help in some way, they could come in secret and then be sustained and maintained out of that fund. And so nobody knew who the giver was. Nobody knew who the receiver was. It was completely anonymous. And it was great because it, it, it voided the awkwardness of one person getting from another person. It voided Andy grandstanding and avoiding the shame and the embarrassment of a family that needed help and had no other way to get that help. So the Chamber of Secrets, and Jesus is obviously alluding to this, and they understood that in that culture. Do it in secret. They knew the whole process of the Chamber of Secrets. They knew how that worked. And if you don't do it this way, if you make a show before your fellow men, women, and you have your reward in full, then there is no further reward from the Father. Now, how are we supposed to understand this reward? See, the Christians, to the Christians, to us, typically the reward is heaven, right? We do what we do here, and our reward is going to be in the next life. So the reward really is a sum of all the dues that we pay as we live our lives. The reward is the, the recompense, the, the payment for all the good that we do, the good deeds, the mitzvah, Right? We get that later in this next life. But this is based on two assumptions. First, that God is up there someplace legally counting. He's got the little green visor on, and he's counting everything that we do so that our reward is just, and reward is exactly what it's supposed to be. And secondly, it's also assuming that the deeds and the rewards are separated in time that they're somehow kind of a cause and effect. And you can look at the reward as an outcome for the things that you do here, but not in this life, in the next life, but there's this separation between the two. These are legal assumptions. Remember last Sunday we were talking about Simon the Pharisee who invited Jesus over. Not because he really wanted Jesus over, but he was trying to find a way to tear him down and trying to find a way to test him and show him wanting as any kind of prophet, as the people were increasingly saying uh, in the countryside. And as he is there with Jesus, the sinful woman comes in, the most sinful woman in the village, and we have this showdown between the two of them. Jesus uses that opportunity to show that Simon, who was a Pharisee's Pharisee, absolutely flawless in his following of the law, felt that he was entitled to the reward of God. Whereas the woman, who knew that she wasn't, was only grateful that Jesus didn't pull away when she came to anoint his feet. If we look at reward legally, 
first of all, we're going to be on the hamster wheel of trying to do everything perfectly, which is exhausting, and we never, ever get there, except in sometimes in our own minds. But also, it leads us to entitlement, that we are now entitled to something that this person is not entitled to. And it separates us from everyone and puts them into boxes and categories and some sort of caste system. And we're judging all over the place, which is what Jesus is not going to tell us not to do in the first line of chapter 7. And so, we want to get away from this idea of this legal assumption that it has something to do with entitlement rather than gratitude. And the other thing is, is that it can't mean legal entitlement to Jesus because he was all over that constantly. The widow is the one, the one who doesn't have anything and is not entitled to anything is the one that he holds up, right? It's the publican who is praying and calling himself a sinner and that he's not worthy is the one that he holds up as opposed to the Pharisee. He is always trying to get us to turn that corner to come back into the Anavim spirit. It can't be about entitlement with Jesus. And the other thing is, is that it can't be about heaven to any Jew. They don't think about the afterlife. They don't have any doctrine about the afterlife. Everything that the Jews are focused on is right here and right now. So what are we talking about? What is Jesus talking about? What's this reward all about? The entire Sermon on the Mount, and this is so important for us to keep in mind as we're reading every single passage, the entire Sermon on the Mount is delivered within the context of kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And the kingdom, as Jesus defines it throughout the course of his entire ministry, is always understood in the context of the here and the now and within us. It's not a territory. It's not out there someplace. It's not some future. There are future aspects to it, but that's still within us. See? The entire sermon is delivered within the context of kingdom. Kingdom is understood within the context of the present moment and actually within us. So the reward that Jesus is talking about also has to be here and now and within us. It's not out there someplace. We're not waiting for it. Jews don't focus on an afterlife, always the present. And then what that points to is that God never withholds anything. He's not holding on to all the prizes until you perform and perform well enough, and then after you die. That's not the way, Jesus, that's not the way God works. Everything is always in motion. That's fear-based thinking that gets us to separate these things in time. Last week, Jesus said, God causes the sun to rise and the rain to fall on the good and the bad and the righteous and the unrighteous. There is never a time that this flow isn't happening. On everybody who is here breathing, makes no difference. It's indiscriminate. Everything that God is that we can sum up as love, always flowing, always in motion, never withheld, can't be withheld any more than you can withhold the energy from the sun. You can go stand in the shade or get in a cave if you want to, but the sun is still shining. The reward that Jesus is talking about is always available. Always. There's never a moment it's not available. And it's always right here and right now. But here's the catch. It's only accessible for each one of us in the moments that we actually lose ourselves in connection. We lose ourselves in the moment. We lose ourselves in relationship. 
We lose ourselves in whatever activity is taking place at the time. The reward is really a state of heart. It's the awareness. It's the knowing of God's presence and God's love right here, right now, that casts out the fear of loss, of lack, of need, right? It all happens together. The act of tzedakah and the reward or the awareness of presence is not separated in time. It's simultaneous. It's a byproduct. Rather than cause and effect in some kind of separated way, it all happens together. The actual act of tzedakah, the act of mercy, is an act of connection. Whether it's in secret or whether it's face-to-face, that creates that sense that there is that speck of reality that we don't normally see that suddenly has risen to the surface and is right in our face. And we know that we know that it's real and that it's more important than the seeing things in life. That's the reward that Jesus is trying to get at. So how does Jesus understand giving then? Well, like law, he's looking at the intent of the giving, not at the gift itself or the amount of the gift or anything like that. That doesn't matter. Why are we giving in the first place? We've got to take a look at this. Because in our church culture, we say a lot of things that are really kind of out to lunch. And, and the, the, the sneaky thing about it is that they're true on the face of it, but what they're pointing to is an intent that is off base. You can't outgive God. How many times have you heard that one? Usually in the context of your tithing, right? Don't worry about it. Tithe more, because you can't outgive God. What's the implication there? That anything I give is going to be returned in some way. And then how much? Well, tithing will come back 100-fold is another one that we used to hear. And so there's idea that not only is your gift going to come back, but it's going to come back even greater. There's going to be a really good return on the investment here. Kind of like one of those email chain letters. You ever get those? Thank God I'm not seeing as many of those anymore. Did it just kind of go out of uh, vogue or something? But yeah, I send this to 10 of your friends, and you in 20 minutes are going to receive something that you can't believe. And so then you pop that off, and then, of course, it's supposed to grow exponentially. But if we're looking at it that way, it changes the nature of everything. If you attach an amount, if you attach an, a percentage to your gift, we got to give 10%. You know, and you know, there's nothing wrong with 10%. It's a good number, you know. It, it, it's a good rule of thumb. But if you become slavishly attached to the 10%, if you become slavishly attached to an actual amount that you have to give, well, then it's just nothing but a tax. The tithe was actually the tax that we talked about. It's not a gift anymore. It's a tax because that's the way that your mind is now thinking about it. Your intent is, I got to give this. It's an obligation. It's a duty. It's a rule. It's a law. And if I give with any kind of hope of return, then it's an investment. But it's not a gift. And this is what the Pharisees had reduced tzedakah to. This is what the people were indoctrinated into. And Jesus is doing everything he can to tear down that edifice because it was keeping the people from the actual experience of the reward, the connection with their God. Leonard Sweet, I don't know if you ever heard of him, he's a Methodist pastor, a total out-of-the-box thinker, just great, great author. 
he has a little piece on this where he says that giving for us has become like a God complex. <laughs> he says, we like to give. We're not so hot at receiving, but we love giving as Christians. Why is that? Because it keeps us in control, doesn't it? It keeps us in the superior position. We don't want to be in the inferior position. We don't want to be the one at somebody else's mercy. We don't want to be the vulnerable one. We want to be like God. We got everything, and we can give it to you. The mindset is what changes everything from a gift. We're not good at receiving. We're not good at being vulnerable. The Anavim spirit that Jesus is always holding up as the one that is closest to God and the closest to God's presence is not available to us if we're always the giver and if we are looking at it like that. Leonard Sweet talks about it as being comfortable with being the ower and not the owner. Get that little plan words? We're the ower. Why are we the ower? Because everything is God's anyway. Everything we have is God's. That's the source of it. You know, we're basically re rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, but we're not making the chairs. They're just there for us. Everything in life is there for us. We're rearranging it. We're pulling some over here and we're pushing off there. We clean up over here and we make it dirtier over there. That's all we're doing is rearranging stuff. Everything is God's. We are stewards, if you wish. We are delivery devices. But we're not the starter of this whole thing. Just as Jesus said, you know, nothing starts with me. I don't initiate anything. It comes from God. It flows through me from God. Same idea here. So we're starting to get closer to this Hebrew concept of giving, but let's read one more. How are we doing? Let's read one more. This is a weird one, and if you haven't read this one before, you're gonna, it's going to make your head go like a cocker spaniel. Yeah. Luke 16, starting at verse 1. Jesus was also saying to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and he said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So he's going to get fired. The manager said to himself, what shall I do? I love this. Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. <laughs> you got to love that, right? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. What am I going to do? I know what I will do, so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes and take care of me. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails... They will receive you into the eternal dwellings. All right. Riddle me that. What the heck is Jesus talking about? Does that sound immoral to you? Does that just sound wrong to you? What the heck is going on? Getting praised for being, what, 
an embezzler and a conniver and everything else under the sun? What the heck is going on here? What is Jesus trying to do? It seems like it's glorifying theft. The key to understanding this whole thing is understanding what is meant by unrighteous mammon. Now, mammon is the word that they use for wealth, but it's not just physical wealth. Mammonas was the name of the Canaanite goddess, the deity of greed and avarice and wealth. Okay, but also greed and avarice, that's important. The idea, the sum total of Mammonas or Mammon was everything that you pile up in your life that you come to be defined by, right? Once you have something accumulated in your life, it becomes your symbol of security. It becomes your safety blanket, security blanket. It comes everything to you. You become defined by it. You can't live without it. When the young man comes to Jesus, what must I do to gain eternal life? Sell everything you have. He can't do it. That is his mammon. That is what is he, he has come, become defined by. And so this idea of mammon, this idea of just wealth here, the way it's translated here, is not enough. It's much deeper than that. It goes much deeper. It, again, it goes to intent. It goes to the character of the person. So unrighteous mammon, we think of it as wealth that has been unrighteously obtained, right? That's not what they were thinking. Unrighteous mammon was mammon or wealth that had been unrighteously retained, held on to. Very different sort of idea. Anything above what was needed by you, yourself, or your household, was supposed to be free to flow to those in need because you didn't need it. If you held on to it, if you didn't give, that was unrighteous mammon. Do you see how this is starting to change now? The manager was making friends, creating a soft landing for himself by letting the unrighteous, the unneeded, at least by the rich man, right? It was his damned up, hoarded, stores flow to these debtors. But it wasn't supposed to have been retained in the first place. In their culture, in their understanding, that was supposed to have flowed to the people anyway. And so the manager is making use of the unrighteous mammon. It should have happened already. And so Jesus is telling them in the same way, make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails... You got all the zeros in your bank account. You think that you're sitting pretty. You're hanging on to that because that's what's going to take you through retirement and through the end of your days, you know? And then the banks fail. What are you going to do then? If you haven't been gracious, if you haven't been practicing tzedaka with your fellows, they're not going to take you in. There's not going to be any soft landing for you. It is all the give and take that happens in good relationship. When I have what you need, I can give. Lend to anybody who asks you. Give to anybody in need, Jesus says. So then the same thing is going to happen when the tables are turned. And the tables are always turned. Even someday, Jeff Bezos is going to have to deal with needing something from somebody, right? It's going to happen. It's just the way life works. So this is another idea. Think about the nature of spirit. Ruha in Aramaic. We've talked about this many times. 
Rucha means spirit, wind, and breath all at the same time. And the characteristics of all those three is that they have to be in motion. They're defined by motion. If you're not moving, then you're not breathing. If breath isn't in motion, you're dead. If the air isn't moving, then it's not wind. And if spirit isn't moving, then it's not spirit. And that's the important thing for us to understand. We don't get it in this culture. Spirit can be static to us, but not so for them. The spirit had to be moving, always in motion, or it wasn't in spirit. I remember we went to uh, the safari park a long time ago, and they have this hot air balloon in the middle of the park, but it's tethered, and, and it's on... Uh, chains that go up and down. And so when it's on the ground, you get into the gondola, big gondola, and then they, they loosen the chains and this thing goes up. But it's tethered, right? It can't just float around. And so it's windy up there. Everything's blowing around. You ever been on a real hot air balloon? You expect it to be windy up there. It's as still as sitting in this room right now. And the first time, you know, the only time that I went on a hot air balloon, I was so blown away when we got up there, it was like totally still not a hair out of place. And I'm thinking, what's going on? And then all of a sudden it hit me. We're being blown by the wind. We're moving in the same direction at the same speed as the wind and everything is perfectly still. Not the safari park. That's blowing because it's being held by a chain. It's chained to the ground. Do you get the metaphor that I'm dishing out here? When we are free to blow with the wind, blow with spirit, things change. If you're living your life with a gale force wind in your face, think about it. What are you clutching onto? What are you holding onto that is creating the stoppage, the damming up point? What's going on? Why aren't things flowing? Why aren't you flowing with? You're no longer moving with spirit. The righteous mammon is always flowing. The unrighteous mammon is that which has been dammed up. It's like electricity. You got a light socket over here. You got the potential for electricity, but there's no electricity. Nothing that can be imagined, nothing that can be um, measured, and nothing that can be defined until you put a load on it. As soon as you plug something in, a light or a motor, now it's flowing. But electricity only exists when it's flowing. Spirit only exists when it's flowing. Righteous mammon only exists when it's flowing. It's just the way that this works. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. If we dam up the flow, if we hoard things, we're no longer righteous and we're no longer traveling with spirit. Now, does this mean that we're never supposed to save money? We're never supposed to invest in retirement or anything? I know you guys are thinking that, right? No, of course not. Saving and preparing for the future is part of what is needed so that we're not a burden on someone else, that we don't have someone else have to take care of us. That's part of what is needed. But how much do we really need? And how much is saved in fear of need? And because of our identification with the wealth that has come to define us, and now we can't let go of, even when we have discretionary income that could go if we just let it flow. This is giving as Jesus understood it. When we become deaf to the need that we could meet out of our surplus, that's unrighteous. Unlike the widow who gave out of everything that she had. 
If we remain focused on need, if we remain focused on our want, if we remain focused on what we lack, we remain fear-based, we remain holding on, damned up, we remain showing off because we need to try to raise ourselves up in our own eyes, which usually is translated to someone else's eyes. But when we can experience the allness of God's love, everything that it means, the inexhaustible flow of it, then we become free to let go, free to let flow. And knowing the real truth of God's love makes us free to flow, to give as freely as we have received. And we have received freely, whether we realize it or not. And there's no need to let others know what we're doing in this kind of mindset anymore. The reward itself is the fearless freedom to give freely. It all happens together. It's all simultaneous. I know I've said this before, but let's face it, we're all pleasure-seeking missiles here. You've heard of heat-seeking missiles. We're pleasure-seeking missiles. We seek pleasure and we avoid pain. And it seems to us Christians that there's something wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. The only question is, what is it that you take pleasure in? What is it that you're seeking? When we know that everything of value in our lives is already ours, we're not seeking it, it's already ours, then the greatest pleasure that we can ever have is letting it all go in a continuous motion to just be part of the flow. God's reward, God's love, is that oneness that we have with each other, the freedom, the flowing, which translates to the absence of fear. And now we're there. Let's pray. Father, even the simple things are so difficult for us. It's amazing how we can understand things and they're so difficult to do. How we can believe that we believe something and yet something down deep is still pulling us in the other direction. Father, we want to be fully integrated as people. That our deepest desires are unconscious programs and everything that we think and say we believe and everything that we do and say is all of one piece. It's all one thing, and it's all one with you. That would be pure heaven on earth, and that's what we want, Father, to find that kind of integrity. So help us first by renewing our minds, thinking about things differently, but then taking those first few fearful steps in a direction that we don't recognize and experience what we experience there of your trustworthiness, of your love that can then usher us in more fully. Help us to be part of that process in you, Lord. Help us to desire and want that process in our own lives. And thank you for being with us every step of the way. Never let us forget, we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.